0: Father, we pray now that you would use your word to show us more of your greatness. We know that your greatness is unsearchable. But God, we pray that you would show us more of how great you are, how great your son is, how great the gospel concerning him is. God, I pray that you would work in each one of us what is pleasing to you. God, I pray that uh, your word would go forth not in word only today, but in the Holy Spirit, and in power, and with full conviction. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, I'll ask you to please open your Bibles to Acts 24. Acts 24, we've been going verse by verse through this book, and we've made it this far. We are in the middle of a section of Acts that you can call Paul on Trial. In chapters 22 and 23, Paul stood on trial before the Jewish Sanhedrin and before the Roman Tribune in Jerusalem. In this passage, chapter 24, Paul stands on trial before the governor of Judea, Felix. In chapter 25, Paul stands on trial before Felix's successor, Festus. In chapter 26, Paul stands on trial before King Agrippa. In chapters 27 and 28, Paul travels to Rome to stand before Caesar himself. So repeatedly at the end of Acts, we look into first century courtrooms and see how Paul responds to bogus charges that are brought against him by people who uh, hate his ministry of proclaiming Christ. And incredibly, what we see is Paul's primary aim is not to defend himself. I say that because we heard Jesus say that last week. Jesus appeared to Paul in a night vision in 23, 11, right after Paul had stood on trial in Jerusalem. And Jesus said to Paul, take heart, you have testified to the facts about me. So Paul's highest aim in these courtrooms was not to testify about the facts of his own innocence, his great goal was, while on trial was to bear witness to the facts about Jesus. And so it will be by the end of our chapter today that the tables have turned and the defendant, Paul, is bringing charges against the judge, Felix, about the judgment that is coming for him. The Holy Spirit brings us into Paul's trial before Felix to proclaim Also to us, these facts about Jesus. Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. And so he is the King of kings and Lord of lords and also the judge of judges. Today's scripture will urge us to live with urgency in light of this reality that we all will rise from the dead one day. And we will stand before this one who rose first. So chapter 24, it focuses first on Paul's accusers, then on Paul himself, and finally on Felix, the governor. And so the first main point of the chapter is the dishonest prosecutors. The dishonest prosecutors. These are the same men who accused Paul in chapter 23. Uh, This time they've hired some professional help. See that in verse 1. After five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman or an orator named Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. So the last trial didn't go as they hoped. Paul escaped with his life. So now they bring their case with the help of a smooth-talking lawyer, a polished prosecuting attorney. See this in verse 2. When he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse Paul, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation, in every way and everywhere we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. Well, talk like that, it, it just feels slimy, doesn't it? And we should be morally repulsed by over-the-top, uh, ego-stroking flattery. The Bible would teach us that. Flattery is a form of dishonesty that Scripture denounces. It is lying in praise of others to manipulate them for selfish gain. Psalm 12, 2 and 3 says... Everyone utters lies to his neighbor with flattering lips and a double heart they speak. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips. Psalm 5, another place where lying and flattery are put in parallel. Psalm 5, you God destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man for there is no truth in their mouth. They flatter with their tongue. See, this lawyer's opening words were sinful flattery because they were dishonest. And one way that's seen is in how excessive the admiration was, right? Much peace, most excellent felis, every way, everywhere, all gratitude. Okay, exaggerating is a form of lying, immoderate praise of others. The more dishonest it is, the more it is Flattery that the Bible would condemn. Now, the dishonesty of this introduction was more than just exaggeration because Governor Felix was actually hated by the Jews. Uh, Josephus writes about this. He had not brought much peace to their people or nation. He was known for being cruel and corrupt and heavy handed and quick to shed blood and eager to take a bribe. This lawyer is just blowing smoke. We can compare this flattery with the opening words of Paul down in verse 10. When the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. Okay, see, Paul still gave the ruler appropriate respect. He spoke courteously to him, but it was not excessive, and he did not lie. He did, not, he did not speak about the virtue of this man because that would not correspond to reality. He just spoke about how long this man had served as judge. Now it's not surprising perhaps that the prosecution began with a form of dishonesty, flattery, because they're in court to bring false accusations against Paul. You see, so this is a natural pairing. Those who are willing to lie in complimenting others are likely those who are willing to lie in criticizing others, too. Flattery and slander come from the same polluted spring. And in verse 5, the dishonest praise of Felix ends and the dishonest accusations against Paul begins. Look at verse 5. For we have found this man a plague one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. Verse 6, he even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. Now, after those words, my, my Bible has a footnote. Your Bible may have some words set apart in brackets after that to let us know that There are some later manuscripts of the book of Acts that have been found that have Tertullus going on to give more details about what happened after the Jews seized Paul in the temple, saying, and we would have judged him according to our law, but the chief captain Lysias came and with great violence took him out of our hands, commanding his accusers to come before you. Well, if, if we include these couple of lines, it doesn't really change the meaning of the scripture because this just repeats information we've already read back in chapter 23, just records it again, but this time, as we would expect, putting a spin on what really happened to make the prosecution look better in hindsight. But I want you to, to look back at verse five and consider more closely the case brought against Paul. Uh, First, Tertullus labeled Paul a plague. Now, some translations say a pest. That's short for an old English word pestilence, which means plague. Uh, They're saying this man is an infectious disease. He is a pandemic. He's an enemy of the public health. He's a threat to the common good. And then the next words of verse 5 tell us how Paul supposedly was a plague. His, his influence spreads like a contagion throughout the world, causing riots. He stirs up rebellion and unrest. See, see they're trying to cast Paul as a threat to the stability of Roman rule. Uh, th- this is one of the most serious charges that could be brought against someone in a Roman court. He's a, a revolutionary threat. Now next, they said that he was doing this as a ringleader of a new sect, the Nazarenes. He, he leads this troublesome offshoot group that's split off from Judaism. It's started by a man from Nazareth who has been executed. Maybe Felix had heard of him. Now the third charge was that Paul tried to desecrate the temple, to, to defile the holy status of the holy place in Jerusalem. And so they seized him. And this last charge, it seems, was probably an attempt to get Felix to transfer Paul's case back to their jurisdiction so they could deal with Paul as they pleased. The Romans did give Jews legal freedom to punish those who violated temple rules, sometimes even to administer the death penalty. So, okay, that's the case. And then in verse 8, Tertullus puts his case to rest. By telling Felix, verse 8, By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. Verse 9, the Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. So now in verse 10, the governor gives Paul the nod to answer, and that begins the next major section of this passage. It turns from the dishonest prosecutors to the hopeful prosecutors. Defendant, the hopeful defendant. This is the longest section of the chapter. It will be our longest point. Look at verse 10 again. When the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. And they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. So he's saying you can go check this out yourself. I showed up in Jerusalem 12 days ago. Surely if this if I was stirring up a riot in a major city you ruled over so recently, would you not have heard about it? If not, you can go verify for yourself. I went to the temple to worship. They didn't even find me disputing with anyone there, much less stirring up a revolt. And then in verse 13, he says, My accusers can't prove otherwise. Verse 13, neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. Now, I've mentioned this before, but I'll say it again. That part of the reason that the Spirit goes into such great detail in the details of these trials of Paul, trial after trial after trial, these are long chapters is to prove that Christianity is not what the enemies of the church charge. It is not a plague. It is not a threat to the common good. A true Christianity in all its doctrines cannot be proved as being harmful for anyone or any society or any nation or, or kingdom. So these trials of Paul are an important part of the apologetics of Acts. Christianity is not a plague. Neither is it some new religion led by some new strange cult leader or something. And that's, that's what Paul addresses next. Verse 14, he's answering the charge now that he's the ringleader of a sect. It reads, But this I confess to you, this I admit, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, believing everything laid down in the law and written in the prophets. So what they call a sect is actually just God's way, the way of salvation, the way of His righteousness, the way of true worship in accordance with everything that's been written in Scripture for a long time. So Paul's claiming, I don't have any strange sectarian beliefs or worship practices. I just worship the God who's revealed himself in the scriptures and I believe what he's written in the scriptures. Right? He, he's saying we followers of Jesus the Nazarene, we're not some kind of schismatic offshoot from Judaism. He's saying Christianity is the truest Judaism. It's not a breakaway sect. This is the mainstream continuation of true religion from the father's from, from the law given through Moses, from all the prophets, all culminating in Jesus of Nazareth. This is not a sect. This is the continuation of true religion. Now practically, Paul may be pointing this out because Judaism was a legal religion in the Roman Empire. And so if he says, hey, this is nothing new, I just believe the prophets, could he really be condemned for being a leader in a legally sanctioned religion? Well, notice again also in this verse, how did Paul expound upon his claim that he worshiped God? I think this is an important connection. He said, I worship the God of our fathers, how? Believing everything laid down in the law and everything written in the prophets. So what does true worship involve? It doesn't come from being in a certain place on earth, or, or cultivating any certain atmosphere in a room, or taking any certain posture, or anything like that. This verse would have us to understand that true worship comes from a heart that believes everything that's written in the Bible. The person who can truly say, I worship God, is the person who can say, I believe what's written in the Bible. And I think there are many today who've built their idea of, of worship on the wrong foundation, that the ultimate foundation of true worship is not just expressing what's in your heart, but believing what God has said. It is faith in his written word, and not not just the expression of our inner feelings that is the heart of worship that God desires. Now next, and more specifically, Uh, believing all of scripture led Paul to have a very specific hope. Look in verse 15. Having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. Now this certain future reality is how Paul could be hopeful even in the face of these false accusations. He was hopeful not because his accuser's case was bad and unprovable, but because he knew God was going to raise the dead. This wasn't a new hope for God's people. The law, the prophets, the Old Testament put this hope before God's people. We heard it at the beginning of our service in Isaiah 26. Through the prophet Daniel, though, the Lord made it especially clear that the final resurrection would involve both a resurrection of the righteous and of the unrighteous. Daniel 12, 2 and 3 says, Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth, dead bodies buried, shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt, and those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. And those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Paul especially had reason to cling to this hope of Scripture now because he had seen the first fruits fulfillment of this. He had seen Jesus of Nazareth resurrected in bright shining glory. Now, Jesus also taught there would be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. Uh, John 5, we read it earlier in this service, 28 and 29. He said, an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear the voice of the Son of Man and come out of the tombs, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Now, often when the Bible speaks about the resurrection, it's only referring to the resurrection of believers, right? the completion of our salvation, uh, when our lowly bodies or our rotting corpses are transformed to be like Christ's glorious body and forever reunited with, with our sanctified souls. But there are a few times in Scripture, including this verse in Acts 24 that we're staring at, it teaches that all people will have their bodies resurrected on the last day. There will be a resurrection also of the unrighteous or the unjust. But their bodies will not be made glorious like Christ's. Uh, they will not be given bodies like the saved, but bodies which are especially suited for experiencing bodily everlasting joy in communion with God forever that show off the completeness and power of Christ's saving work. Now, those who participate in the resurrection of the unjust will find their their souls joined to transformed bodies of dishonor, which are especially suited for experiencing, the prophet Daniel said, shame and everlasting contempt. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Okay, so think about this. It is fitting for those who have sinned against God in the body, in this life. They've used the members of their body as instruments of unrighteousness. It is fitting for them to be judged eternally in bodies. And likewise, it is fitting for those who have served God by His grace, also with their bodies, their instruments as members of righteousness, to be rewarded also by His grace in incorruptible bodies. There will be a resurrection of the just, and the unjust. And Paul was gripped by this reality. And so part of why he is saying this is to say, hey, this is true, I know it's true, so I would never do these immoral things that they're accusing me of. And you'll see that connection in verse 16. Look at verse 16. So, it's an important linking word, or the the NAS puts it, in view of this, in view of the resurrection, I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. If you keep the resurrection in view, in your mind, it should have a very strong, controlling influence on the way that you live. And Paul said, because I see by faith in Scripture that one day every dead body is going to come up out of the grave. And so I strive. I take pains. I give my very best effort. Never to sin against conscience or against another person and and if I do, to pursue repentance and and to make uh, restitution to my fellow man when necessary. Uh, One of church history's greatest preachers, John Calvin, said that there is no sharper prick to prick men forward to all desire to live a godly and holy life than the hope of the last resurrection. So if if you can sincerely say, I believe in the resurrection of the body, then you should also be able to say, I take pains to have a clean conscience before God and man. If you can't, then then you don't believe as, as you ought at least, that there's a disconnect between the hope you have or say you have for the next life and the way you live in this one. And again, in verse 14, Paul said, I have this hope in the resurrection that these men also accept. He said the people who were accusing him also accepted the reality of the resurrection, but it didn't grip them in a way that they actually felt compelled to live with a clean conscience because they felt free to lie about Paul and lied to, to Felix. They accepted the hope of the resurrection, but it was, not, it was not truly their hope that motivated their living because it didn't motivate them to give their best to live with a clean conscience. Are you having trouble walking in obedience? Meditate on the reality of the Resurrection. live with the reality of the resurrection in view. And I want you to note that that if you do that, that that doesn't mean that you live a fearful, overly scrupulous life. The man who said, I take pains to have and keep a clean conscience before God because of the resurrection, he also said that this reality of the resurrection was, was his hope. Verse 14. Not his dread. See, the future resurrection of all men should motivate a Christian to live a holy life, but it should do so in a hopeful way. If we're trusting in the death and resurrection of Jesus for us, which cleanses us from past and future sins and cleanses our conscience. Also, as a gift of God's grace. And his work empowers us to be able to live in good conscience before God and man moving forward. Well, verse 17, Paul begins to address the last charge they brought against him that he tried to defile the temple. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. Now, look at the first half of verse 18. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple. The opposite of of defiling it, he went through their purification ceremonies when he entered the temple. And they found me without any crowd or tumult, not stirring up any discord. And again, verse 17. Paul said the reason why he had come to Jerusalem on this occasion in the first place. What did he say? It was to bring alms. He showed up in the city to bring financial relief for the poor in Jerusalem. And that's a sad irony of this trial, that Paul is being accused of so much wrongdoing at the very time that he was trying to do so much good. And that is sometimes the the world repays a Christian's efforts to do good in it. And that's why you must learn in your heart motives to love your neighbor for the sake of pleasing God, for Christ's sake, so that if your neighbor uh, either overlooks or despises the good that you try and do them, you won't grow weary in well-doing because it was ultimately for Christ all along. Now look at the rest of verse 18 now. Paul continues the story of when he was seized in the temple. But now he brings up an important point about who seized him. Verse 18. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia. Verse 19. They ought to be here before you and to make an accusation should they have anything against me. Paul realized that the Jews who claimed they saw him trying to defile the temple, they weren't actually there at the trial. And, and Roman law expected those who brought legal accusation against someone to show up to trial to, to press the charges and to be able to bear witness against them. So, so now Paul pivots his argument, and, and he directs his defense against those Jews who were in the courtroom, the members of the Jewish High Council. And he says, okay, well, what can they firsthand In a first-hand way, bear witness against me that I've done anything wrong. Well, only this. When I was standing in their courtroom, I professed my hope in the resurrection. So look at verse 20 and read that. Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. So so Paul ends his defense on the note that he sounded loudest in the middle of it. I I have this hope in Christ, and in the Scriptures, the dead will be raised, the resurrection. After this, Felix sends Paul back into custody. And, And so now is our next main point. The hopeful defendant becomes the alarming inmate. The alarming inmate. Look at verse 22. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off saying, "Uh, When Lysias the tribune comes down from Jerusalem, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty in that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. Does not that show that Felix knew Paul was innocent? Verse 24 tells us what happened during this time in custody. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. Now, the story of Felix and Drusilla, how they came to be married, was a public scandal. Drusilla was given in marriage to someone else, another royal figure, Uh, But Felix persuaded her to leave that man and marry him instead. And and this was his third marriage. So if you know that, if you know that that these are people of such public uh, scandal, you'll see why Paul picked the themes he did when he talked with them about faith in Jesus. And you'll be able to understand why Felix responded like he did to Paul bringing these things up. Look at verse 25. As Paul reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. Well, isn't it obvious now that Paul was not going to flatter this power couple he talked to them directly and personally about righteousness self-control and the judgment and he did it in a way that made the governor tremble and you don't have to uh, pound on pulpits and scream uh, for that truth to alarm someone what did verse 25 said it said Paul reasoned with them about these things just a reasonable private discussion We all need people like Paul who will talk straight with us about our souls who might need you to be that person for them. You can't always avoid making someone feel alarmed or uncomfortable if you will be Christ's witness. And if you want the Holy Spirit to work through your witness I'd suggest you should imitate Paul and focus on these themes in your evangelistic conversations with others. Righteousness, self-control, and judgment. And I say that because Jesus said in John 16 that the Spirit would come to convict the world concerning what? Sin, righteousness, and judgment. And so these are, are the themes that we should expect to hear coming from the lips of a Spirit-empowered witness. Now, Jesus also said, that same chapter, that the Spirit would come to glorify Him. So the main theme we expect to hear from a Spirit-empowered witness is Jesus. And so, when you read and think about Acts 24, don't forget to read verse 25 in light of verse 24. Remember that this alarming straight talk about righteousness, self-control, and the coming judgment... That all happened under the heading of speaking about faith in Christ Jesus, verse 24. So he wasn't saying, You've been bad, God is judged, do better. He spoke about these things while addressing faith in Jesus. But, but, you know, I guess we could make an inverse point too and say, Don't forget to read verse 24 in light of verse 25. Remember that speaking to people about faith in Jesus necessitates addressing these truths. Righteousness, self-control, judgment. And even doing so in a very personal, direct, reasonable way that the Spirit can use to convict and alarm. Now make sure, first, in how you think about applying these verses, that, that you consider these truths with respect to your own soul. Now, have, you, have you ever been in Felix's shoes? Have you ever felt alarm because the Spirit's convicted you of ways you've not been righteous? Or, or you've been alarmed because you realize, I have not lived with godly self-control. And alarmed because you know God has appointed a day for judgment where you'll stand before Him in a risen body and be called to account for those things. Now, I hope you have been brought to that point. I hope that, that grace has taught your heart to fear as we sing because the fear of the Lord is what? The beginning of wisdom and that's part of the beginning of the spirit saving work in someone. The spirit alarms, the spirit convicts to propel sinners toward faith in Christ Jesus for salvation from judgment and from unrighteousness. But there are many people who have, who have at some level been brought to a place of appropriate Sober minded alarm about their standing before God, but have not propelled forward to a broken hearted repentance and a saving faith in the Savior. And Felix is one of them. He started to feel alarm. He did not call out to God in repentance or for salvation. He just wanted to stop feeling uncomfortable. And so he told Paul, when he felt alarmed, go away. Hey, you're making me feel bad. Stop. Read again verse 25. As Paul reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. This is the final main point of the passage, the procrastinating judge. Go away for now. When I find time in a convenient season, I'll call you. Now, Felix had already put off making a a definitive decision about Paul's case. Verse 22 said, Felix put them off, saying, when Lysias comes down, I'll decide your case. And because, do you know how procrastination works? It, It is a greedy monster that grows and grows and grows. And so you should not be surprised to find that over two years later, Felix is still putting off deciding Paul's case. See that down in verse 27. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Porcus Festus. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. He still still didn't act definitively. It was far worse for Felix than putting off Paul's case in court. He put off his own case in God's court. And people like Felix say, "I'll reconsider righteousness. I'll reconsider faith in Christ when when I have a more opportune time, when I'm in a more convenient season." But do they? Will you? Did Felix, it seems that after Felix threw cold water on the alarm that he felt about his sin, he just got over it. Verse 26 says, at the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. He's hoping for a bribe. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. He did call Paul back a lot to talk more. I think we infer safely. The alarm wore off. A different concern started dominating his heart in these discussions. So now he could hear Paul say the same things often even, but it didn't bother him in the same way anymore. See the great danger of spiritual procrastination. If you feel conviction of sin and a godly fear But then you postpone acting on that. How do you know? How do you know that you will ever feel that again? Will suppressing the call to repent now make you desire more strongly to repent in the future? Does it often work that way? Does that even make sense? when you feel alarmed, when you, when you are jolted into spiritual sobriety by the Spirit, if, if you just press snooze on your soul and go back to sleep, you may find that it's harder to wake up again and feel the same degree of concern in the future. And I offer you, as Exhibit A, Judge Felix. God's word says today if you hear his voice don't harden your heart because today might be the softest your heart ever is to considering your sin and judgment and faith in Christ. Spiritual procrastination is extreme presumption. Romans 2, 4 and 5 Now is the acceptable time says God it is written Don't put it off. Jesus is not a judge like Felix. He is not putting off your case. Acts 17 says a day has been appointed. He is no procrastinator. He is right now, don't get the wrong idea, he is right now patiently restraining his judgment to give his people, whom he will save by grace, time to repent. And the scripture says, He desires that that you would repent. So you, you can postpone your concern about judgment, but you can't postpone the reality of it. Listen to God reason with you about this. The Bible says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and repent, you shall one day rise and shine like the brightness of the sky above. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall rise to everlasting contempt. The mouth of the Lord has has spoken. What sweet, reasonable words are those? You can be washed white. How? By what Paul was talking to Felix about, by faith in Christ Jesus. The blood of Jesus, his death, washes away the stain of your sin against God. And it washes away the guilt of your conscience. Because the coming judgment came on him already when he hung on the tree. The judge himself took it in the place of all who would be his, in the place of all who would trust him, what he did to save them. And then three days later, he rose from the dead so we could have that declaration of his righteousness credited to us. We can have the perfect record of his perfect human life and his perfect self-control counted to our record before God and that after having all of our sins scrubbed off of that record by Christ's blood. This is the free gift of God for all who will repent and believe. And this free gift in Christ also trains us, the Bible says, trains us to live actually self-controlled, righteous lives in the present age as we wait for him to return and resurrect us. Titus 2. Now one final application for Christians on just this thought of of spiritual procrastination. There's an application for you too. If the Holy Spirit convicts you of sin or convicts you about some obedience that you owe to God, don't put it off. Look at Felix. One day can, can turn into two years before you know it. God, thank you for this hope that you've given us in the resurrection of Christ, which is a guarantee of our resurrection. God, I pray you would help us to be gripped by the reality of it so that we would take pains to keep and gain a clean conscience before you and before man so that we could please you by the way that we live and serve you with greater zeal and joy in you for your glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.